You, O oh Lord, speak, and the miracle is that you speak. You speak to us and through us. Speak to us today by the power of your Holy Spirit and equip us to be messengers of your life-altering, world-changing, blessing-filled word. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Then begins today's passage. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and to not lose heart. Today's passage begins with two assumptions. The first being the need to pray always, to pray always in fact, and the second, not to lose heart, not to give in or give up. Here, both prayer and perseverance, here they're both held together as one. According to Jesus, the practice of prayer is crucial to spiritual resilience, to keep on keeping on when you can't keep on no more. And it makes sense that Jesus would be giving this teaching at this point in the story. First, it makes sense because Jesus' betrayal, his torture, his arrest and crucifixion are only a few chapters away. Jesus himself will be afraid and will ask God in prayer for another option, another way around. But somehow, Jesus will ultimately be given the courage to give himself over entirely for the sake of his divine mission. And second, it makes sense that Jesus would begin this passage this way because Luke's gospel was written around the year 75 or 80. It was written in a time of persecution. The Romans were not big fans of Christians and made sure that they knew it. Could we get the next slide? Many Christians at this time were socially outcast, discriminated against, and at the worst met the same fate as Jesus. But last, that last part didn't make a lot of sense to the early Christians because Jesus had promised the coming of God's kingdom. That the world would finally be set right by God. That sin and death and evil would finally be thrown down for good and all tears wiped away. That God would reign and heaven and earth would come together in an everlasting embrace. This promise initially made his early followers able to withstand whatever the world threw at them. It made them able at first. But then one decade passed, then another, and another, and another. And you have good and faithful people wondering if all the persecution and all the pain was worth it. These are the people who would have comprised the audience of this gospel. Time passes and they wondered if the restored world they believed in was coming soon or at all. They wondered if the world would get better, in fact, when in fact the world seemed to be getting worse and worse by the day. 
Now, few of us have experienced the kind of suffering and persecution that the early church underwent in following Jesus. I mean, there are Christians in the world right now, of course, that are, that do have, ex- have experienced this in the Middle East. Uh, the Middle East comes to mind. I mean, we might have to suffer through being made fun of or thought of as closed-minded or weird or moralistic, but it's hard to imagine the courage and willingness to take on long-term suffering and possible death for the sake of conviction in a place that's as safe as religiously pluralistic North America. It doesn't sound that familiar in that way, but it does sound familiar in another sense. Because persecution isn't the only kind of suffering that can cause us to lose heart, is it? On the small scale, there's chronic pain, there's terminal illness, there's addiction, there's poverty, there's cruelty, there's injustice, there's depression. All of these things can suck us in to a whirlpool of anguish, of fear for the future, all on the individual level. On the larger scale, though, it can be the state of the world that causes us to lose heart, and maybe that might be the thing that's most likely to cause us to lose heart. If I could get the next slide, please. This past week, I read what must have been the 10th article I've read in the last year about what they're calling climate change anxiety. You probably have read one or two articles or heard stories on it. The article reports a, or cites a report that climate change and natural disasters are taking a huge toll on mental health. This article was specifically about, the, about climate anxiety in children. Symptoms include depression, anxiety, and this can be particularly hard on children. The article quotes a psychologist who counsels parents to discuss these fears with their children to, quote, Avoid hopelessness. Again, that's to avoid hopelessness. No doubt because the problem seems so large and impossible and the prediction so bleak that few of us have any idea actually how to deal with it. Some of us, some people, are already losing heart and already giving in. Even at this early stage of things. Now, Even climate change aside, the state of the world at any time can weigh heavily on us. In fact, the state of the world now and throughout history is one of the chief reasons why people reject faith, Christianity, or any other kind. It's not so different between us and the early church in that way because they heard Jesus' promise of a world made new and then the world around them seemed to get worse. It's hard to look at the state of humanity and the state of our world and see some kind of beautiful outcome, some bright and shiny future. It's hard to see the hands of a loving God in times where the world just seems to be spinning out of control. It can be easier just to give in and to give up, resigning ourselves to the present moment. And I'm going to counsel you all to give in and give up. No, I'm just kidding, of course. (laughs) Might as well give up. We're all here. Let's all agree. 
<laughs> According to Jesus, though, someone with whom we have a little respect for in this place, it's times like this that call for faith. Faith is exactly what's needed to make our way in the world we know. And the way to cultivate faith, according to Jesus, is through prayer. Pray always, he says, and do not lose heart. Of course, in church, we think prayer is a good thing. It's a good idea, a thing that we should do, but we rarely actually talk about why we should do it. I mean, of course, there's the reason to ask for help when we need it to say thanks, to discern the right course of action. Maybe occasionally, you know, you're guilty of asking God for an empty parking lot at the mall or something, you know, an empty spot near the front. But here Jesus points us to a rarely considered purpose of prayer. Prayer as persistence. Prayer as persistence. Prayer as the gateway to hope. The gateway to hope. Next slide. In a certain city, Jesus says, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. Those seem to go together a lot. In ancient Israel, judges are supposed to do both things. They're supposed to fear God in the sense of putting God's demands before their own and being a just and impartial executor of justice on the other hand. And this guy's neither. He's a very bad judge, very bad judge. It doesn't say it directly, but this guy's verdicts could probably be bought by the highest bidder. Because this is a constant problem in the world of the Bible in ancient Israel, that the powerful could use their influence and sway to win court cases over the week. I don't know if that sounds familiar at all to you. Maybe it does. But this guy doesn't care about justice. He's in it for himself. And probably in it for the cash, too which doesn't, which, you know, helps. And one day it says this unjust judge, this corrupt judge, had to hear a case involving a widow from his city. Next slide, please. And the thing about widows is that they're the weakest of the weak in the world of the Bible. No husband, so no work. No work, so no money. And no money, no food to feed themselves or, them, or their families or their children. And what's worse is that they can't inherit property from their husbands either. So this widow here has to fight to scrape a living to get what's owed to her. Somebody owes her cash or property, we don't know who, but we know that without some kind of settlement, this widow is done for. But of course, this is the wrong judge to go asking for justice. He's in the pocket of her opponent and doesn't care about right or wrong. So she shows in, up to that jury box, and she's denied. I mean, thanks, Ingrid, for ruining the rest of the story. But anyway, I'll keep going, <laughs> in case you weren't paying attention. She's denied, and she's out on the street. This corrupt judge is the only judge in the city, so she might as well give up, give in, and die. Talk about giving up hope. Talk about losing heart. But she doesn't give in, of course. She files another case. And that one's denied, so she puts in papers for another one. Here, 
Same thing, denied. Then another, and another, and another, and another, and she just keeps on going. It says that she keeps coming at him saying, give me justice, over and over and over, again and again and again. And as we heard in the children's story, it, it works. Day after day, the bailiff says, please rise. And she's there again. And one day, the judge goes into, you know, exhausted parent mode, you know, where the kids just keep hammering at you over and over again. And he thinks to himself, ah, this lady again. Ugh. You know, he says, I may not give a damn about what God thinks, and I may care even less about flesh and blood human beings, but man, I'm getting sick of seeing her face. I'm just going to give her what, he, what she wants, because honestly, this is just, this is wearing me out. This is going to kill me. And I mean, it's interesting, because the original Greek kind of uses a boxing metaphor, like these two are in the ring, and he's like Mike Tyson, and she's like this little skinny lightweight, you know. He uses this boxing language that he's worried that she's going to wear him out and then sucker punch him when he's not looking. I mean, I love it. Just because she wears him down. He gives in to this widow because she wears him down. Persistence, it seems, pays in this court of law. I mean, it's a funny scene. It's, it's hilarious. I mean, and it's meant to be. I mean, Jesus is funny. We need to get this in our heads. When we were, actually, it's, it's funny, because when we were going over worship this week, Kelly, our pianist, said, uh, you know, uh, this point of this parable seems to be the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And that's certainly what happens in this parable. And at first it sounds like Jesus is saying, you know, if we pray hard enough for long enough, we'll wear God down with our prayers. I mean, that's kind of a bit of a funny image, that God will eventually decide to grant what we want by sheer annoyance. These people just keep praying and praying and praying and uh, fine. But no, it's, it's deeper than just annoyance. Following the parable, Jesus offers his interpretation because remember, this is all about prayer. Listen, he says. Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will God... Will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry out day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. Basically, Jesus says that if this garbage bag of a judge will finally grant justice to this widow, imagine how the God who is perfect good, perfect love, and perfect mercy, and perfect justice. Imagine how that God is itching to deliver those who cry out. Even when justice seems far off. Keep praying, Jesus says. Jesus counsels prayer because prayer is an act of faith. When the path is dark, 
faith is what helps us venture out in uncharted territory. It helps us endure trials and terror because we know that with God there is always a future beyond the present moment. With God there is always a future beyond the present moment, even when things seem bleak. I mean, in this parable, really, Jesus teaches persistence in prayer only on account of God's persistence. That God is the one who will never give up on us, will never ultimately give in to the suffering of God's children or God's creation. Next slide, please. I just thought I'd put this in here because my favorite theologian, Karl Barth, who resisted the Nazis in the 1930s, so you can imagine what hopelessness might have looked like and felt like as Hitler rose to power. He was fond of telling his students this, that to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. To cry out to God for justice and mercy means we believe that they will come, that the world needs to change, and that somehow change is a possibility. Otherwise, we wouldn't pray them in the first place. So, brothers and sisters, pray for deliverance. Pray for God's world. Pray for yourself. Pray for justice. Pray for healing, mercy, and grace. Pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because to do so, is to put our faith in God's future, even when that future seems out of reach. And if you don't have a prayer life, there's no time like the present to begin. Of course, prayer isn't a magic wand that will fix everything. It's something more. To pray, to put our hearts to God in trust, to cry out for mercy, means that we believe those prayers will someday, somehow be answered. Whether soon, in small glimpses of mercy and healing, or at the end of the age in glory. And in doing so, we find, we'll find that we're given the strength, the courage, and the perseverance to hold on, to do what's right when the odds are stacked against us even when tomorrow seems bleak for ourselves and our world, it means we can endure. It means we can persist. We can keep on keeping on in the work of living fully and loving out without qualification. Because it's this work that God has given us, work that God already has underway, work that we may never see complete, but we can trust that it's never in vain. So may each of us pray always and never lose heart. May we never give up and never give in. 
because the good news of the gospel is that God will never give in and never will give up on us or the world he loves now or forever. Amen.